a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. If you've got your Bibles with you, if you'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, please. This is the second preach that I prepared this week. Because the first one, I'd got about three quarters of the way through and uh, decided that we were going to have communion together this morning and uh, really felt that I should speak into that and prepare our hearts for that. And so the first one went out the window and I started again. (laughs) And um, I want us to look at this morning at uh, what Paul has to say to the church in Corinth about communion or the Lord's Supper, as we might sometimes call it. And uh, I thought it'd be good to do that before we share it together. And so that's the plan uh, for this morning. So if you've got your Bibles open in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read from verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that you come together as a church. There are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. It's not looking good, is it? But Paul goes on. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, as with uh, most of his letters, Paul is writing to a particular church and addressing some issues that have arisen in that local church. And the church in Corinth, that is the recipient of this letter, is an interesting one. On the one hand, they're a highly charismatic, very lively, full of the Holy Spirit, dynamic church seeing spiritual gifts, uh, great evidence among them, and uh, really going for those sort of things. But on the other hand, there are certain things that have got out of hand, too many hands, isn't it, (laughs) that Paul has to address. And he begins to address some of those things here. So if you know the book or the letter of uh, 1 Corinthians, you'll know that Uh, In chapters 1 and 3, he addresses some divisions that have occurred in the church. In chapters 5 and 6, he addresses some issues of sexual immorality and the fact that people in the church are suing each other in the law courts. He goes on to talk about marriage, food sacrifice to idols, worship, love, the body of Christ and money. And some other things as well. These guys had a number of things that they needed to address. And one of the areas that Paul writes to them about is the way they celebrated the Lord's Supper, or communion. And in Paul writing to correct their practice, we can learn 
what our practice should be. And so that's what I wanted to remind us of this morning. So why don't we pray and ask God to be with us as we look at these things together. Father, we thank you for your word to us and we pray now as we spend a few moments looking at this passage together that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us. Help us to understand what we read. Help us to understand anew the importance of communion and what it means for us. I pray you'd come and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the problem that the Corinthian church had was that people were were coming to the communion meal and they were gorging themselves on the bread and the wine with obvious results. Now, fortunately, I don't think we have that problem. Looking out this morning, I think we're okay. So having rebuked the church there for their drunkenness and their poor behaviour, Paul goes on to tell them what the communion meal should be like and what it means, what it's really for. And this is where we can learn something. And uh, for many of you, you will have heard this passage preached on a number of times, I would imagine. And uh, I want us to remind us of a few things. So even if you've heard this type of message before, even if you've looked at this passage before, I want you to have open hearts and uh, be expecting God to reveal something new to you this morning. Maybe to have a fresh understanding of his love for you in this. So as Paul talks about uh, what the communion meal is for, what it really means, he refers back to what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. And we don't have time to look at it, but you can look at it if you wanted to. It's in Luke chapter 22. And what happens is Jesus takes everyday meal items of bread and of wine and he tells the disciples to use them as symbols to remember him. Now, in fact, uh, you'll know, if you, you know what's happening in Luke, that the disciples had gathered to remember the Jewish feast of Passover and to eat the Passover meal. This was remembering what had happened when God rescued the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. You'll, you'll know if you know your Old Testament history that the, the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites, uh, those who had marked their homes with the blood of the Lamb. And uh, you'll know how Moses led them out subsequently from Egypt. So Jesus is celebrating this event with his disciples and, and they're looking back to that occasion in their past, in their history. They're reminding themselves of God's faithfulness to them, how God rescued them from the oppression of the Egyptians and, and all that happened there. So as they're thinking in their mind of what happened in the past, Jesus is looking forward for him at that stage at least and tells them to remember something else. See, in the Passover meal, they remembered a lamb that died, whose blood was shed, and the angel of death passing over their houses. But Jesus was aware that he was about to become the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus became a sacrifice for us in our place. Now, the Jewish people were familiar with sacrifice. They knew all about Old Testament sacrifices, about bringing lambs to the temple. It was a familiar picture for them. I guess in our culture, maybe it's not quite such a familiar picture. Have any of you brought your lamb with you to sort of sacrifice this morning? No lambs? 
goats, doves, anything like, like that. This is not something where we have the same... Uh, it's not in our, in our culture, is it? We don't have the same, perhaps, understanding that they would have of it. One of my, my lecturers... Mick Taylor uh, said in quite a recent paper he's written, he says this, it's commonly accepted that in the New Testament there are five main images or metaphors used to explicate or explain the saving significance of the death of Jesus. And these images are taken from five different spheres of life. And so as you read through the New Testament, you've got uh, Paul talking about using an illustration of the cultural it uses it to explain how we're justified before God, how we're made righteous. And he uses the imagery of the court. He talks about the marketplace too, and to illustrate the truth of redemption. For a, a, a slave in New Testament times, they would have been bought and sold at a market. Now, we might go into town and, and buy things in the market. You're probably not buying slaves. It might be sort of pears and apples and, and some vegetables, but I, I guess you're not going to buy a slave. Whereas for them, if they'd gone into the market, they could have bought and sold slaves in the same, at the same time. And they would have been familiar with the concept of redemption, where somebody could pay the price that was on the head of a slave and let them go free. If that happened, they would be said to have been redeemed. The New Testament talks too about uh, personal relationships, perhaps a, a subject we're more familiar with, and uses that to talk about how we're reconciled to Jesus in the cross. New Testament too talks about uh, sacrifice and uh, we've got this imagery of what's happening during a worship context of the Old Testament temple and they would have understood something of that, how sacrifice was part of the deal, Jesus was sacrificed on the cross and the other illustration we've got is one of a battleground how in the cross Jesus triumphed over evil now some people then and today would understand perhaps one picture better than the other and that's fine but actually, each of those five pictures are equally true. They help us to understand a different facet of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we're talking here mainly about sacrifice, aren't we? And Jesus uh, sacrificing himself on the cross. So Jesus talks about his impending death on the cross and refers to the bread as his body and the wine as his blood. Now, let's be clear, Jesus isn't suggesting that the bread and the wine somehow magically morph themselves into being literally his body and blood. Some people have taken that to be the case over the years. That's not really what is being suggested here. But rather, Jesus is using these items as a symbol, a reminder. He's saying, do this in remembrance of me. It's similar to a wedding ring. Those of you who are married may uh, wear a wedding ring. So our wedding ring symbolises a marriage, doesn't it? It reminds you of it. It's a symbol of what's happened. It's a symbol of your, your status, your, your marriage. Now, the ring itself is not the wedding, is it? It's a ring. It's not even proof of the marriage because you could just put a ring on if you wanted to. It wouldn't have any legal status in and of itself. But it is a sign. It's a reminder of your marriage. And so the bread and the wine remind us of something. They remind us of Jesus' death on the cross. They remind us that he paid the price that we should have paid. 
The bread reminds us that Jesus' body was broken on the cross. The wine reminds us that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, Jesus died in our place. Jesus died in our place, in your place and in mine. You and I were under God's judgment for our sin and because God created a perfect world, didn't he? In the beginning, God creates a perfect world and uh, puts mankind in it for a relationship with himself. But if you know the Bible, you'll know what happened, that men and women rebelled. We went our own way. And because of that rebellion, we found ourselves under God's judgment. Romans 3, 23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sometimes we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to other people, don't we? Or is that just me? But we do, don't we? We can compare ourselves to others. So we can say things like, hey, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Someone once described it as, as a ladder. Imagine there was a ladder here this morning. And um, you, you could say that you know, if God is at the top of the ladder, and that, that's perfection, his, his status is perfect, then now where would you put yourself on the ladder? Well, you might at the bottom, for example, uh, put people like, I don't know, uh, through history, you could put people like Idi Amin or Hitler or Bin Laden or terrorists or, or other people that you might describe as really evil and nasty and uh, just far away from God. So you might put them right at the bottom of the ladder there. So at the top, we've got God sitting there in perfection and at the bottom, we've got really nasty, really sinful evil people we might say so I wonder where you'd put yourself we could pick out other people in in history couldn't we so uh, you might remember uh, a few years back somebody like Mother Teresa well she wouldn't she wouldn't have said that she was you know perfect like God but she'd be pretty high up the ladder wouldn't she I think you know we're talking well over halfway I'd imagine you know somebody like Billy Graham you know you might think well he's got it pretty high no not, not, not right at the top but you know, he's, he's probably a good, you know, 60% up, isn't he? I would think, you know, you, you might try and put, put him there. Imagine you stick his name on. I wonder where you'd put yourself. I wonder where I would put myself. Well, obviously, it would be below people like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, except that, you know, we wouldn't want to sort of usurp them, would we? But actually, it doesn't really matter where you put yourself on the ladder. On the ladder. Because actually what the Bible says is we've all sinned and fallen short of God's standards, of his glory. So actually whether you're just below it at the top there or whether you're way down at the bottom with all the really evil, nasty people that you might think of, actually the same truth applies. You've missed it. You've missed it. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. So actually we're all under God's judgment. However, because of his love for us, because of his great love for us, as the Bible puts it, God provided a solution to that problem. So there's nothing that we could do about it. We couldn't climb the ladder ourselves. We couldn't get across the great divide between us and God. Only God could do something about it, and he did. And it wasn't a last-minute plan. It wasn't like, oh, no, they've blown it. Now what do I do? sort of scenario, actually, God knew we were going to blow it. And so God knew all along that he would have to send his son. 
He always knew that it was going to happen. So Paul says this in Romans 5, verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone dare to die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Before we'd even acknowledged the existence of God, let alone that Jesus had died for us, Jesus had done it. He had died for us. And that's what we remember in the bread and the wine. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for you and for me. And it's okay, you can look happy about it. Because it's wonderful news, it's the truth of Scripture. Jesus died for us. He died in our place. You see, it should have been us on the cross. Actually, it should have been you, it should have been me. We're the ones that really should have died for our sin. But Jesus chose to die in our place. And it's a horrible death. The cross is one of the cruelest forms of punishment ever invented. I mean, it was so bad, even the Romans themselves banned it eventually in 315 AD. And for them to ban it, it must have been pretty awful. It was horrific. It was horrific. But it should have been us. It should be us that faces a holy God to give an account for our sin. But Jesus stood in our place. He paid the price in our place. The punishment that should have been ours, he took it on himself. Isaiah 53 makes it really clear. It says this, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. Couldn't be any clearer, really, could it? Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed. Maybe you've, um, you've heard the phrase penal substitution. If you've read any of the Christian press or uh, similar books recently, it might, you might have come across the phrase. It's been discussed a lot. Wayne Gruden, the theologian, simple definition of what that phrase means is this. He says, Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. His death was also a substitution in that he was a substitute for us when he died. I love it when theologians put things simply. (laughs) And Wayne Gruden does an excellent job in systematic theology there. So Jesus died in our place. So, what's the result of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection? Well, it's this. We can have eternal life. John 3.16, the verse you may be familiar with, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. By believing in Jesus. Hallelujah. So, as you take the bread and wine in a few moments' time, remember what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Remember what he has accomplished. Remember that he died in your place. Remember that it should have been you. But he took your place 
so you didn't have to go through with that. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you may be thinking, well, what's all this got to do with me? It's got everything to do with you. Everything. Because if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, then you will need to give an account to God of your life and of your sin. And if you're not getting to the top of that perfection ladder, you need to pay the penalty. We're not talking about a fixed penalty notice or a fine or a few points or even a short spell in prison. The punishment for rebelling against God, the punishment, the Bible says, for not meeting the standard of perfection because God is holy, so we need to be holy, the punishment for that is death. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. So do you want to pay that price? Or do you want someone else to pay it for you? And the only person that can is someone who has done already. And that's Jesus. You can let someone else pay the price. Just as we talked earlier about a slave being redeemed from the slave market, someone came and paid the price for his release. You can ask Jesus to pay that price for you even this morning. And by trusting in him, by trusting in his death and resurrection, you can know your sin forgiven. You can have your relationship to God restored. Or to use another word we used earlier, reconciled. Made right once again, that relationship with him. You could take the bread and wine this morning and maybe for the first time ever be thanking Jesus for what he's done for you personally. In Acts chapter 2, when some people asked the Apostle Peter what they had to do to be saved, he replied this. He said, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 2.38. So you could repent this morning, you could even be baptised this evening. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you haven't been baptised yet, then you can still be baptised this evening as well. So as we eat the bread and drink the wine, let's be thanking God for sending Jesus. Let's be thanking Jesus for going to the cross, for suffering, for dying in our place, for taking our sin upon himself and for rising again, returning to life and in doing so promising us the resurrection from the dead and eternal life with him. Matt Redmond puts it like this in the chorus of a song. He says, Once again I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside. Once again I thank you. Once again I pour out my life. Let's stand together, can we? Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday morning.